0: In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the Three Jewels— In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the Three Jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the Three Jewels— whatever the virtues of the many fields of knowledge Steps on the path of omniscience. May these arise in the clear mirror of intellect. O Manjushri, please accomplish this. Greetings and welcome. Thank you all for joining us. A number of other people will be joining us off and on as we go through. Um, so we begin with that chant each week. I think most people are familiar with that, and now you have it. And, um, uh, I'm going to just mute people, but uh, feel free to unmute yourself when you want to talk. And, uh, so tonight we'll dive into the, uh, this class, which is Knowing the Nature of the Objective World, and I picked up that title from the introduction to uh, this book, which I uh, will read for next week, where the Dalai Lama goes through the different texts that are oh, the um, preparation for this course that are preparation for the deeper study. Uh, let's see, get my little act together. Okay, good evening and welcome. <laughs> so, uh, the material that we're about to dive into is the preparatory material for the study of the root texts in the uh, classical and contemporary shadra systems throughout Tibet, the monastic education systems throughout Tibet. And you don't hear very much about these preparatory manuals. They're like basic training that you go through for, uh, in the military for all different types of uh, postings. All branches have their basic training. And every shedra, every monastery that has a school has these preparatory texts. And um, they're essential so that you know the language and you know the, con- the sort of the context, the terminology, and the topics, and how the topics are viewed that are then going to be discussed in the root texts of the shedra. So the root texts of the shedra are the Abhidharmakosha, Kosha by Vasubandhu, which is the treasury of Abhidharma. And then the uh, Pramanavartika, which is a commentary on valid cognition by Dharma Kirti, discussion of uh, the nature of cognition. And then the understanding of the middle way, the introduction to the middle way by Chandra Kirti. Um, Madhyamaka Avatara in Sanskrit. And then the Abhisamaya Alamkara, which is the ornament of higher realization by Maitreya. And that's out, uh, that uh, presents the stages and uh, characteristics of the various paths in Buddhism. So that's number four. So I have Abhidharma, Pramana, valid cognition, Middle way is number three, number four is paths and stages is the, the sort of uh, summary or code name. And then the fifth one in the Shadra tradition, since they're monastics is a monastic, is the uh, monastic rules or a commentary on the monastic rules. but given that none of us are monastics, and the uh, separation between the Shadra and the meditation hall doesn't exist in our world the way it did in tibet where the shadra was literally separate from the uh, monastery where all the meditation and the retreats happened which was sort of a given that everybody did that so i've included that as our fifth topic instead of the monastic rules so meditation and there's since it's not one of the topics there's no uh, traditional source text for that But I think uh, if Tibetans had to pick one, they would unanimously pick Kamala Shila's Stages of Meditation, Bhavana Krama, in three parts. And um, so each of the first four have a little primer that goes before it. And um, I I wrote this up in the... uh, It'd be easier if I showed this to you. Um, Well, I, I, I haven't...
1: let's see if I have that one.
0: Sorry. So, um, I know how I'll show it to you. I'll show you the tables of contents that I circulated. So... First, the first subject Abhidharma is introduced with a primer, which is the sort of uh, Western term for introductory uh, t- textbooks. Did did people, when you went to school, did anybody like have primers? <laughs> That's if you went to prep school, right? If if you go to prep school, you have primers. It's not that common in the West anymore, right? It's like something from the past, but uh, we use that silly term. Anyway, so for Abhidharma, the uh, introductory text is called the Collected Topics. It's this term in Tibetan Dudra, which you see up here. And uh, in English, it means a collection of topics or the uh, speaking of a compendium. Draw is like the... Uh, um, it's the same draw as in Shadra, So Shadra is like making knowledge or, or bringing about knowledge. And here Dudra is do is a, a compilation, or so we say, collection of topics. And those topics are the f- uh, sort of framework that the abhidharma literature makes uh comments upon and uh, creates the world of buddhism that we know in terms of skandhas ayatanas datus um the uh those in uh in in the west when we talk about Abhidharma, we basically think skandhas skandhas ayatanas and datus right traditionally like uh in the Abhidharma texts of the Pali Canon and also in the Abhidharma uh, texts in the later tradition of uh, Vasubandhu and Asanga. Um, Abhidharma also included the paths and the stages of the holy beings, of holy beings or progress on the path, as well as the cosmology of Buddhism. Which is why we see in this book, we go from very uh, sort of down-to-earth things to the last chapter is on uh, fetal development. <laughs> I don't know if anyone else was surprised by that. <laughs> it's like we go from from uh, Skanda's very basic stuff in this book. I'm looking at this, the science and philosophy in the Indian Buddhist classics. Part one is the physical world. Noble objects, subtle particles, time, the cosmos and its inhabitants, the different creatures, and aliens and things like that. And um, and then we have fetal development and the channels, winds and drops. And so see, these are some of the more traditional topics in the Abhidharma, as well as causes and conditions. Um,
1: so the... The contents
0: of this first preparatory manual called Collected Topics uh, has these parts, objects, subjects and the methods that lead to cognition of objects and subjects, or to cognition of objects by subjects. How do subjects cognize objects? And the focus on this first one is on objects, and it's objects in the in the literal sort of sense, in terms of like the the uh, overall framework of Mahayana Buddhism, where we talk about two truths. Here we're basically talking about the relative world, the world as we experience it, as uh, common sentient beings. Um, Our world is full of various types of objects, which include persons, by the way. Um, But subjects are uh, sentient minds, and uh, that is the focus of the second of these texts, the presentation of the classifications of mind. And uh, that's the introductory text for the Pramanavartika, the Commentary on Valid Cognition generally or it's uh, th- this one is uh, sort of interesting it, it sort of spans both abhidharma and uh, abhidharma and pramana and here we have the uh, definitions and divisions of mind
2: sarah can you share your screen again because i didn't get a chance to print it out so i could see it
0: ah, no, good?
3: yeah apologies. i'm not sure which document you're still looking at is this the one that says at the top? i'm so
0: sorry I, I i thought it was screen sharing the whole time
3: yeah, yeah. huge trouble
0: <laughs> okay, so back to reality here. The first text, collected topics. We have an explanation of objects, just briefly, and I'll come back to detail. And then we have subjects. It just it, we'll have like one little uh, definition of a subject in this in this introductory uh, book for the Abhidharma, and then uh, these eight ways or nine ways of cognition of objects by subjects in terms of these different types of phenomena, and these are pairs, these are uh, pairs of
1: opposites.
0: Uh, Up until the last one. And then the second introductory text is presentation on the classifications of mind. And this serves as uh, additional preparation for Abhidharma, but more particularly for pramana or valid cognition, definitions of mind, the divisions of mind between valid cognition, the types of that, and non-valid cognition, and then an analysis of uh, different modes of engagement, where we revisit this whole section here, where initially we'll have a sort of cursory presentation of this. Here we have a deeper presentation of these modes of engagement. And then um, a deeper dive into the different aspects of mind, primary and mental and secondary or mental events, and their differences and similarities, and the famous so called fifty-one mental factors. And then the third introductory text is called The Presentation of the Classification of Reasons. And here we have uh, Explanation of Inference. Uh, what is the correct reason for in, in, the, in the world of inference? And we have Divisions of Correct Reasons in terms of their essence and Divisions of Correct Reasons in terms of uh, what's left out here is in terms of their function. And then we have uh, seeming reasons, meaning not real reasons. These are reasons that are elusive. And a little appendix. I ha- I have not included here, and I will work on including in the future, just so we have them all together. The fourth text is called Grounds and Paths. And that's uh, very... Uh, Also a summary level presentation of the different stages of the five or stages and characteristics of the paths and their qualities in the Buddhist Mahayana tradition. Which consists of uh, exploration of the five paths of accumulation, preparation or unification as the second path, the third path is seen. The fourth path is meditation or familiarization. And the fifth path is no more learning. And the fourth path for Bodhisattva is broken down into the famous scheme of the ten grounds or ten Bhumis. And uh, there's a uh, vast and intricate system of the various uh, afflictions and obstructions that are overcome at the various stages of these paths, as well as different travelers along the, these paths that have different schemes or different encounters let's say along the way Eric yes ma'am
3: could you just briefly say what lorik is and Tarek? you said dudra was abhidharma
0: yeah so i didn't yeah thank you very much so i didn't give the tibetan for these other two uh, primers so dudra means collected topics and then lorik lo is mind and Rick is classifications. So this is the classification of minds. and these are the short uh, uh, nicknames for these texts. Dudra Lorik is the presentations of the classifications of mind. And then Tarq. Rick is again is classifications and Ta is reasons. So classification of reasons. Presentation of the Classification of Reasons. Thank Thank you. you. And then the fourth text, The Grounds and Paths in Tibetan is Salam, S-A-L-A-M, looks sort of like salami without the I. And then coming back to the collected topics, what we'll be going through is the explanation of objects. So the focus in the collected topics is the objects and, and the way that the Dalai Lama uh, characterizes this in, in his introduction. is he says, it's the objects of the knowable world. It's the, um, so on, on page 17, of his of this book the classics in the indian tradition indian buddhist classics in the middle the mind and reasoning reasoning is explained above the buddhist science or its presentation on reality can be grouped under four main topics the nature of the objective world the presentation of the mind the subject and so he he highlights that the second one is focused on the subject, how we perceive, and the first one is focused on what we experience, what we cognize, the second one on how we cognize, and so what we cognize is the objective world, the world of objects, phenomena that are taken as objects by subjects, and so the, the significance of that sort of clunky language will gradually expand as we go through it. Uh, but the idea is that some samsaric some beings, uh, sentient beings, experience their world in a dualistic way, which means subject and object. And so that's the framework that we undertake when we study our world. Our The world consists of the objects that we experience, and. The way we as subjects experience those objects, what types of subjects there are, or what types of cognitive mind there are, and then how those two interact, How how we as subjects cognize objects. And um, uh, so this whole system has a a, a very interesting way of classifying phenomena. Now, when we say phenomena in English, it's almost always the translation of the word dharma, which is a Sanskrit word that has numerous meanings. And in this case, it means, uh, in English, phenomena, the sort of... um, the content of our experience of our world, both as the content of our objective world and the content of our subjective world, are both or all referred to as Dharma. It's a little different than the way we think in the West. We think there's, all, you know, things and we don't really think of like anger and lust and pride and stuff as things but they have the same ontological um, level of existence in this this tradition and things so things is um, a category within objects you see that there's there's a classification of objects in terms of their entity, in terms of their ontological being. And then there's a classification of objects in terms of the way they are taken as objects, which is which is different than um, how they are exist how they exist. There's how phenomena exist, and then there's how subjects experience them. And this is, ideally, this is meant to puzzle you and intrigue you initially so that you will not, instead of like um, deciding that you know what that means, you will leave that uh, part of your mind open to learning in more detail what that means. And then in terms of entity, ontological reality of phenomena, or objects, there's two ways of classifying them. That doesn't mean there's two types of of things, it means there's two ways of looking at things. There's looking at them in terms of their entity, again, their ontological manifestation, and then looking at them in terms of their function, how they interact, and in terms of their entity, We
1: have matter, consciousness, and then this third thing called non associated formations.
0: Mental which are sometimes called mental factors. They're in the fifty one mental factors. I'm sorry. Uh, Scratch that. Non-associated formations are not in the mental factors. I'm sorry, when we go through consciousness, that's going to include the mental factors, but the non-associated formations, it's easier to um, uh, look at those as a list instead of uh, sort of describing them as a uh, generality because they're an odd lot an odd bunch. And then in terms of function, we have causes, which are the primary factors that bring about activity between entities. And then we have conditions, which are supporting factors for the interactions of objects. And then we have results.
1: Then we have non-things.
0: And uh some examples of non-things are space. <laughs> so so non-things in general is a funny uh category. And um uh it's it's completely intentional that there are non things that are phenomena. Phenomena includes non things. And we'll learn what a thing is because we'll go through definitions of things and we'll learn what a non-thing is. Um, Non-things that are not included on this little list here are things like uh, unicorns, sky flowers, children of barren women, to, to use a couple of the traditional examples, And the most famous example of a non-thing is uh, the self. There is another way of uh, looking at this
1: breakdown, which is... This guy. Let's see if I can uh, figure out how to turn him about. Clockwise. Okay.
0: So, it's a wonderful uh, chart put together by Carl Brunholtzl of Notorita Institute. And you can see, classification of phenomena is the major category here. And then we have objects. And we have subjects. And then we have methods that lead to cognition of objects and subjects. Now I said objects by subjects. And this says objects and subjects. Partly because um, Objects, uh, subjects can also cognize c- subjects, which is a slight nuance that we'll come to l- later. Um, we'll stick with the, the the organizational chart, so to speak, of this first the uh, hierarchy first, and then we'll go back and look at some of the subtlety. Objects are classified in terms of entity and in terms of the way that they are taken as objects. Objects are taken as objects by a subject in terms of the appearing object or apprehended object, a referent object, and the object of engagement. And that's a way of breaking down the um, different aspects of cognitive experience. So that, uh, basically, to step back a little bit, the, uh, which I should do before uh, diving in too much to this, is that um, the overall strategy in the Buddhist tradition is to acknowledge suffering, to acknowledge that suffering is caused and to find the cause of suffering and try to reduce and ultimately eliminate the cause of suffering in order to experience genuine happiness, genuine liberation from suffering. And the root of suffering, initially when the Buddha taught the Four Noble Truths, he said, what, what was the, the cause of suffering?
2: Attachment to a non-existent self?
0: He said, that's close, part of that. Anyone else? The The short form of the second noble truth?
1: Desire. I was gonna say grasping.
0: Yeah. So um technically those two are slightly different. If you remember your twelve Nadanos, there's there's uh uh what well, desire sort of spread over grasping and clinging. But he, he said desire is is the cause of suffering. And uh when that is presented formally by his prede- his uh, descendants his representatives that live after him and explain his teachings in detail. Desire turns out to be not the precise cause of suffering, but the most tangible outcome of that cause that tends to be uh, the most um, sort of graphic driving factor for um for causing suffering so it's a little bit of a shorthand that the buddha gave and and when that's presented more formally the cause of suffering is ignorance ignorance in terms of what uh, jill was talking about earlier as believing in the existence of a self or ignorance in terms of not knowing that the self that we cling to and, and uh that is the reference point of our every moment of cognition, is a, um, is a myth. It's non-existent. And so, the strategy is to understand the nature of that mistake, the nature of that confusion, that ignorance of thinking that there's a self and there not being one, is how does that come about? And instead of like looking like, what year did that happen? When did that happen? And who did that to us? Or where that happened? That we started to believe that there was a self. We take it from the moment, the present moment. Say, what am I doing in every moment of my cognition, of my awareness, of my waking life that perpetuates towards the manifestation of that ignorance? As the um, most effective way of beginning to reverse that ignorance, is to understand what is it doing right now? How is it functioning? How is it operating? And it's operating to create this feeling that there's a subject, a perceiver, and that perceiver is me, and that perceiver is cognizing phenomena. And those are my cognitions. And so we analyze the nature of the things we cognize, and we analyze in what way we cognize them. The emphasis is definitely upon what way we cognize things. But in order to understand clearly how um, cognition is described in this system, it's helpful to understand, uh, to, to become very clear about what it is we are talking about cognizing of. What are the objects of cognition? It's helpful to be very clear about those in order to be very clear about how we're cognizing them and the nature of the mistaken cognition that we have that goes on all the time. It's very helpful to get clear about both sides of the equation. Um, especially in terms of talking about them. A lot of what we'll study in this is laying down terminology that clarifies the difference between the appearance of a of a phenomena in our mind versus the appearance of a phenomena outside of our person, outside of our uh, body. As an example of uh, the type of distinction that we want to be really clear about, so we set up this whole way of uh, discussing things. And um, if you've ever, we've all heard about Tibetans and they're debating, right? And you've seen pictures of the the monks, primarily sometimes nuns. I usually see monks, but nuns. There's tons of nuns. They all do this, and they stand around in the courtyards, and there's like like tons of them in the courtyard and they're paired off usually in twos or maybe threes and they're slapping their hands and like threatening each other with their hands and yelling. And, you know, it's very theatrical. And they're, they're debating about like very little simple things. (laughs) Like what is, uh, I was reading something, in preparation for this, I think it was it was one of the articles that I circulate. I circulate a couple of articles that we'll come back to and in one of them, the author makes this point of uh, how we can one can easily mistake the the content of what we're studying to think that it's about the objects it's not about the objects it's about how we experience them, but in order to understand how we experience them we need to understand what we're talking about experiencing and the monks were using this example of a golden pot and the guy quotes some experience where uh, somebody was visiting during this annual ceremony where they all get together and they debate and he saw these two monks arguing about a golden pot and then a year later he comes to the next annual ceremony and these same two monks are arguing again about a gold pot <laughs> and the guy says why are you guys arguing about a gold pot you're monks and i mean this is crazy i'll get you a freaking gold pot <laughs> you know why argue about it as like a really gross example of like totally not understanding what they're talking about <laughs> as if they were arguing over a gold pot <laughs> um So coming back to our uh, chart here that shows things. Um, I'm leaving this hanging, the way things are taken as objects. We'll come back to that. And we'll focus initially on uh, the classification of objects in terms of their entity. And we have things and non-things. And we have detail on things. We don't have much detail on non-things. And the detail on things is a breakdown of things classified in terms of either their entity or their function. Their entity is matter, consciousness, and non-associated formations, and matter has this little breakdown. And um, I'll show a more detailed table of contents
1: uh, here, actually. Can you
2: explain non-associated formations?
1: Yeah.
0: Okay, can you can you see this table of contents that I just brought up? Okay, so this is from this text, the root text called Collected Topics. By a gentleman named Acharya Lama Tempa And I'm sorry, I'm not evading your question. I'm going to come back to your question, which is a very good question. What is non associated formations? Um, the breakdown of matter is outer, inner matter. The form source is the form, dhatu, sound, dhatu, smell, and so forth, dhatu. Consciousness, non associated formations and uh, function, causes, and conditions, and results.
1: And uh, let's see if I have on page 9
0: That which is neither matter nor consciousness and is observable as a conditioned phenomenon is classified as two the non association, say, associated formation that's the person, and that is not the person.
1: Um,
0: that doesn't help much. Um, non associated formations are. Uh, Well, the the person is one of them. They are phenomena that uh, were considered in the earliest Buddhist school as being real, existing phenomena. In the earliest Buddhist school, um, there's various branches of that, of the earliest school, but Uh, the overriding uh, theme of the earliest Buddhist school is exemplified by the branch called the Sarva-Astavadins. sarva in Sanskrit, and Sarva means all. And then Asti, A-S-T-I, means exists. And then Vadins, you've heard of like Theravadins. Sarva, so sarvastivadins, and I hope you don't mind me trying to lay Sanskrit primarily on you. We'll do a little Tibetan as we go, but it's helpful, I think, for you to understand these terms because you'll see them and they'll it won't uh, trip you up as much. But sarvastivadins, vadin means those who profess, those who hold to a certain view, like teravans, They hold to the tradition of the teras, and teras are the the elders the elder monks. There's teres are the elder nuns. And so Sarva Astavadan says, those who profess that everything exists. And so um, they profess that these non-associated formations, things that are neither mind nor matter, but we experience like time, like words, and syllables, and birth, subsistence, and death, and impermanence, and um, gender. They actually have gender in there. <laughs> they have life force. Um, I'll, I'll have to, uh, let's see.
4: Der- Derek?
1: Yeah. <clears throat> yes. Derek? Yes, yes. Um I'm listening. Please.
4: I sort of vaguely remember that um, them being explained as kind of processes.
0: That is how they're generally explained, yeah.
4: Sort of not um that tangible. More yeah. of a
0: it doesn't really do them justice, but here's the <laughs> traditional list. Um of-
2: would it help to think of them as things that we, where we group a whole lot of perhaps discrete phenomena into a thing that we then name? Is it kind of that? Like, well, I'm
0: sh- I'm going to show you here. Can okay. you see this on the screen?
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Okay. So we have uh, non-associated formations. And you'll see various translations of these terms, non-associated Phenomena, um, but non-associative formations is is a uh, common one, and uh, there's those associated with the person, and those that are not associated with the person, and there's uh, acquisition. Persons acquire karmic momentum, karmic uh, karma. We acquire karma every moment of our existence. We acquire karma, so. Um, when when we go about to explain like the law of karma which is one of the fundamental facts so to speak in the in the presentation of buddhism is that karma is real um, and we all know this that there we build a, a propensity we have momentums and propensities towards this and that and so how do those we all we also know that there's uh, impermanence that everything is Instantly arising and disappearing, and we're talking radical impermanence, right? So things last for an instant, and then they pass away. So how does uh, karma get passed on from one moment to another within a phenomena, like a person or a being? And So the idea is that persons acquire karma, acquisition. Um, shared qualities, you know. So you're going to see. This is just like this weird hodgepodge. Uh, there's certain types of trances that are in the non-associative formations. There's the trance that goes. The, these translations are a little bit clunky. Thoughtless trance is uh, translate is the uh, samadhi of cessation of uh, perception and non-perception. Result of trances, old age, impermanence, uh, becoming, subsistence, birth, annihilation, nature of common persons, life or life force, those not associated with the person necessarily, name, phrase, character or letter, distinction of causes and effects, speed, harmony, order, direction, Number time, gathering of causes, non-existence of causes. So this is a traditional list of the non-associated formations. Now, when you look at, by the way, the mental factors, the mental factors, uh, that to know your mental factors, they come in five groups. Omnipresent, meaning they exist in every moment of cognition. And object determining, they exist in any moment, every moment of object oriented cognition, which is almost every moment, all cognition is object oriented, Then we have virtuous factors, root afflictions, we're all familiar with these, ignorance, desire, anger, pride, and doubt and wrong view, or view, and then secondary afflictions. Now, if you look at the virtuous factors, faith, heedfulness, pliancy, equanimity, shame, embarrassment, non-attachment, absence of hatred and bewilderment, non-harmfulness and exertion. Where's generosity? Where's, um,
1: where's patience?
0: Where's compassion? Where's joy? <laughs> you know, so these these uh, are not, uh, are generally not considered to be exhaustive lists, and that's debatable. And uh, we're supposed to say that phrase a lot. We're supposed to say, well, we could debate that. <laughs> Because really the idea in studying this material is to sharpen, it's not to like memorize lists of things so you can rattle these off, right? It's to sharpen your awareness of what your experience is, what your mind is doing and how it's doing it, and how it's creating the illusion of a self. Everything has to constantly come back to that. So all of this is, is being done to sharpen our, our perception and understanding of our experience the one of the main strategies of the ego in its uh, you know as if it existed but one of the strategies of ignorance in that makes us believe we have an ego is that it lumps everything together there's like this sense of like oneness of things or wholeness in our experience and so the strategy of abhidharma is just like Uh, The strategy of one of the more famous conquerors of all times in the Western world. He was famous for conquering Gaul. Do you know who I'm talking about?
3: Julius Caesar. Julius
0: Caesar, thank you. And what was his famous strategy?
3: Divide and conquer.
0: Thank you. Right so it's like we you know the mind just seems like one thing and so the strategy is we're going to divide that mind up and see all the different little aspects of it so the myth of there being this me as one unit unified entity that you know spans all of these experiences ultimately is dissolved So anyway you have these lists of uh all these mental factors And we have this list of the non-associated formation. They're not exhaustive. They're not, you know, they don't include every possible possibility. And they're weird. And one of the main things that happens between the earliest phase of Buddhism and the second phase of Buddhist philosophical uh, exploration, which is uh, characterized by the Sautrantika tradition, is that the non-associated formations are not considered to be uh things they're actually considered to be non-things and just uh to um focus yes
2: There's a nice definition in the back of the book. And it says that they're not mental phenomena or material form.
0: Right. I mean, that's how they're described. They're neither mind nor matter. And so that's a a technical way of saying what I just said. And uh, the idea is... If, you know, can you think of so-called things that are not mind or matter? And that list that we went through was the, uh, the response of people who lived in the first few centuries after the time of the Buddha, who tried to grapple with their world and understand it instead of as one whole thing and break it down into parts. Now, what is the thing? A thing is that which is able to perform a function so i'm taking a little sneak peek into this book called class uh, uh, collection collected topics and i've suggested that uh i've recommended to people to purchase this book as well but i've said it's not essential because i'll show bits and pieces of it as we go through the larger book which we are using as the main source text the science and philosophy in the indian buddhist tradition but this is a little cryptic uh, text which is made up of definitions with slight um, explanations and this this i'm going to just touch on this one because it's so crucial is the definition of a thing is that which is able to perform a function So, initially, they thought all those things in the non-associated formations were performing functions. Words, phrases, time, life force, all those odd things in the non-associated formations. Here, the meaning of the definition of a thing now which is able to perform a function is as follows. Any phenomena that performs the function of producing its own specific result. And I'm going to skip this for now. Any phenomena that performs the function of producing its own specific result is a thing. Then we have examples. You know, It's, it's helpful to understand how these definitions or explanations are presented. We have the, the real part of the definition. It performs its own result, specific result, and then we have examples, such as later moments of its own continuum, or a consciousness apprehending that specific phenomenon. So those are the the way, that's the way a thing is defined, that a thing produces, performs a function, and functions are of two types, either they're uh, causal in terms of producing the next moment of their own what's called continuum. And a continuum is successive moments in the um, appearance of a phenomena. And uh, it's it's uh, a way of describing the continual appearance of phenomena through time, even though we hold that those phenomena are not the same moment-to-moment. They're different phenomena, you and I, and everything around us. Every moment is not the same phenomena as it was the moment before. But by and large is the specific result of the prior moment of the chair, and the table, and the lamp, and the book, and the computer, and the body that you, so, so-called, you reside in, and so forth. And the other thing, the other way of defining a thing's function is that it's observable. A consciousness produces the result of there being a consciousness that apprehends that phenomenon. And apprehending a phenomena can be either directly or indirectly. We can apprehend the phenomena through our five senses, or we can apprehend the phenomena through inference, which is a helpful way of understanding um, phenomena that don't appear to our five senses. Derek? Yes?
4: I'm just
3: just stepping back for one minute and wondering how much... We need to pay attention to the way these terms are used, because in Karl Brunholtzel's chart under function, it says causes, conditions and results, for example. And also entities used twice, once for things and non-things, and then things are either entities or functions, I guess. I'm I'm just, I'm not entirely clear on it, but I'm just wondering, you know. Yes,
0: great importance on the way these terms are used. How uh, much
3: do we need to know and like really?
0: Pay, pay a huge amount of attention to the terminology. And uh, one of the challenges is that uh, the terminology is generally created in either Sanskrit or Tibetan. And we're receiving it in translation. And so when you experience this, this material in different books, you'll see some very different translations of terms. And you have, and it's, you have to, um, understand the context in order to understand whether they're talking about, uh, whether they've translated something that you know by a different term. Uh, so it's it 's really important to pay attention to the terminology ideally well prime uh, you know ideally you would have uniform terminology either by using materials all from the same translation team or um, some other way but usually it 's like these days it's is if you you know use material from one translation, translator, or translation team, then the, the terminology is consistent, and that's really helpful. So here we have two different worlds. We have the team that produced these books, and then we have the Notarta Institute team that produced that, collected topics through text, and they're similar. They are probably not identical. Um, which. Uh, so is,
3: yeah, sorry. So the fact that it, there are three things under function, and you just talked about two things for functions, does that matter? Is that important to figure it, out?
0: It, it is. It is. Um, uh, it, it's actually really important, and that's that's great that you're asking about it. So. First, we have a classification of of uh, things in terms of entity or function, and the functions are of three types: causes, conditions, and results and um that's a way of breaking down the activity of causation you know just to y- use one of the three causes, conditions, and results as a a label that actually includes all three, just to be clear. When we talk about causation, at least in Buddhism, causation is a process of the coming together of a collection of causes and conditions that produce a result. And um, so... uh, in that way, we're identifying the different members of that process of causation as being uh, identifiable as different phenomena. And then when we say um, a, 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 a thing is that which performs a function such as producing its own specific result, there we're talking more generally and Uh, about causation, as opposed to identifying just one of the three members of causation. In order to produce its own specific result, it necessarily has to include causes and conditions. So initially, this seems like, like, overly, like, Uh, OCD right and like absurd but gradually it's it's a way of refining the way that you talk about what your experience is what our world is and that's a reflection of the way that you understand your world so we become very precise about our language and our understanding so it's it's really helpful to uh to ask questions like that and see why why is it being used? We're using the same term, so basically, my response is that in one of those instances um the term uh, producing its own specific result is being used in a general sense as the activity of causation of of activity of uh um, coming about or resulting and when we when we do it formally, when we classify. Phenomena results are one of three types of activity under uh, the classification of things in terms of their function. So, thank you for that. And uh, you also asked about um, what was the other?
3: Oh, yeah. I, I well, I guess was using entity as just an example. Um. You know, I mean I wasn't necessarily wondering about it right now, but just as an example of something that I might be confused about at some point.
0: Yeah. You know, yeah.
3: Cause it's in two places.
0: Yeah. Uh well that's good. Entity generally means ontological basis. And uh let's as we come to those specific uses we, we can stop and, and talk about that. Um, so for today, my goal was to introduce this material and um, look at, at some of the details of it, primarily through going through the table of contents, which we did through the hierarchical chart, we've gone through and then also i wanted to go through this part of the book called uh, the appendix and the 18 topics and sort of go through that briefly as a way of uh, um, what you you have touched on in the preface and in the translator's introduction but you'll uh, experience more as we go through the book. Is that this system was initially developed by a gentleman uh, named Chapa Chukisenge, and so uh, when I say Tibetan names, I know that uh, the mind if you don't know Tibetan the mind goes blank and it's so much easier to deal with them when you look when you're looking at a printed version of the word so i'm going to ask you to go to the appendix which is 429 and we have the the 18 topics of Chapa chukki senge and if you saw his name transliterated it would be even more disconcerting because it's one of those words in tibetan that is very weirdly transliterated and um, let, let's run through a little bit of these 18 topics so uh, he um, is famous for having discovered uh, and translated Chandra Kirti's introduction to the middle way uh, whereas before that time and he lived in like the 10th or 11th century and he um, Buddhism had been uh, pervading Tibet for a few centuries before that, brought in by uh, Padmasambhava, Vimalamitra, Vairochana, and Shanta Raksita, and Kamala Shila, sometime in the 8th century, the late 8th century. And they translated numerous texts at that time, began the system of uh, monastic system, and began the education system. And uh, the focus of their study of the Middle Way was Shantarakshita's text, since he was the guy that was invited to introduce uh, monasticism and the monastic studies into Tibet by King, Trisong Detson. And uh, so he promoted his own book, as authors are wont to do. (laughs) And uh, his book presents a synthesis of uh, two or three types of uh, way of ways of understanding the middle view, the view of the middle way that had developed in Buddhism over the um, thirteen some odd hundred years before his time. He was in the eighth century, and the Buddha was in the, approximately the fourth century or so B.C. and um, he presents a synthesis, and uh, Chapachukhi Senge, some few hundred years later, uh, discovers this text by Chandrakirti that had been translated earlier, but was not made much of because of the emphasis on Chantarakshita's synthesis. And Chapachukhi Senge makes a big deal out of this uh, text by Chandra Kirti as being the purest presentation of the middle way. And uh, his understanding of that text and its contents wins favor without, throughout Tibet. And Chandra Kirti's presentation of the Middle Way becomes the uh, primo facto um, ideal way of understanding the middle way in Tibet, and it's known by, uh, famously by its name in Sanskrit of the Prasangika tradition, which means those who understand by consequences. And the idea is that instead of presenting, uh, views about phenomena that would, could then be um, developed into an understanding of the absence of their inherent existence, the Prasangika system takes statements that uh, opponents or people in the world or oneself more likely would likely make about our world, such as "I have a headache," or "I'm tired," or uh, "I'm angry," or "desirous," or "I, I have a self," and we would take those statements and extrapolate them in detail until they become absurd absurdities in order to reveal the reality of emptiness or shunyata or the absence of intrinsic existence in all phenomena. So he's famous for starting that, but he's also famous for starting uh, what's called the earlier tradition of the uh, study of valid cognition or pramana and uh, It's sort of testament, is this list of 18 topics. And uh, um, we won't spend a lot of time on it because it's rather abstruse and difficult to understand. But it's basically like the culmination of studying this material should bring us to the point of being able to understand what he's talking about. Not only understand it, but understand why he's talking about it. Because when you don't really understand it, it seems like ridiculous that he's even talking about these things. Uh, so first we have color, white and red and so on. And by the way, the um, s- some of the uh, primers on this material were not always called collected topics. There's a, a sort of a genre or a, f- a number of instances of these examples of primers. And basically every monastery would have their own version of the primer and commentaries on the primer and the one that i recommended for us to use by a trial lama tenpa jelson he's a, a currently living uh, a great scholar that teaches at natarta institute which is an awesome program by the way if you're interested in taking this more deeply i highly recommend it and so he is presenting the sort of uh, view of his teacher, Kempot Soltram Gyamso Rinpoche, who is the sort of uh, uh, spiritual master of the Natorta Institute, um, whereas Poon-lip, Dzogchen Pulam Rinpoche is the current uh, director of that institute and uh, presents the view of his his teacher, Kempot And So, uh, uh, Charya Lama Tempa Jelsen presents our version, or his version, of the collected topics. And these versions are very much the same, but they vary slightly. Many of them were called colors and so on, which was the sort of short-term name for these collection of topics where they basically run through the list of Abhidharma topics and give definitions and talk about them. And there's there's one other uh, chart that I wanted to show before we Oh, I've I've also circulated to you the uh, charts that summarize the other two texts, the Lower, the Classifications of Mind, just because I think it's helpful to have these uh, graphical depictions. Valid cognition, non-valid cognition, direct and inferential as the two types of valid cognition, and we're not going to go through this stuff yet at this point. But this is just for your interest: classification of types of reasons, correct reasons in terms of their essence, a terminological classification, and uh, so we ha- oh, we have these two types of classifications. There's classification in terms of entity it's like what is their ontological essence of a phenomena and then in terms of uh, terminology just like different ways of talking about things doesn't impact their actual entity-ness but just like ways of talking so we have a terminological classification of reasons and then we have non-reasons called seeming reasons Ah, And then we have this. And this is a very helpful and very simple scheme, but it turns out to be in- incredibly uh, subtle and profound when we go through different types of objects and, and different instances of those types and compare them with each other. And there's four possible comparisons between phenomena. There is whatever is... P is necessarily Q, and whatever is Q is necessarily P. We would use A and B. For some reason, this author of this chart used P's and Q's. And what this first possible comparison is, is called identical. These two phenomena are identical. A is B, and B is A, or P is Q, and Q is A, right? The second way the two phenomena can be related is that whatever is P is, is necessarily Q, but whatever is Q is not necessarily P. That means that um, P is included within Q, but there's other things in, in the in the subset of phenomena called Q that are not P. So that's called inclusive. Whatever is Q is necessarily P, but whatever is a P is not necessarily Q. That's the opposite one. Uh, this, this one has five comparisons. Two and three are the same. They just switch the P's and the Q's. <laughs> Number four, whatever is a P is not necessarily a Q, and it is not the case that whatever is a P is Necessarily not a Q. In other words, there's some Ps that are not Qs, and there's some Ps that are Qs. And whatever is a Q is not necessarily a P, but it could be a P. Some Qs are Ps, and some Ps are Qs, and some are not. So there's overlapping. And the Venn diagram is, is like says it much more simply than the words, obviously. Right, so there's some intersection of those sets. And then they've got nothing whatsoever in common. Whatever is a P is necessarily not a Q, and whatever is a Q is necessarily not a P. Now, partly, they describe it in this way to get you used to uh, precise language. Necessarily not a Q. It's different than than probably not a Q. (laughs) Right? Okay. Uh, oh, here at the eighteen topics of Chuki Sangha okay, color, white, red, and so on introduces the student to objects experienced by the five sense consciousnesses, so the so on goes through the five other senses, though so the title indicates only colors topics include all five sense objects blah, blah, blah. In turn, these sensory objects form the referent basis for detailed analysis by the philosophical categories outlined in the remaining 17 topics. The term referent basis is a technical term. So a basis is um, the, uh, the aspect of a phenomena that a forms the reference point for observation or discussion. So, a cup is a basis, a chair is a basis, a term is a basis, a word is a basis, a phenomena is a basis. So, the referent basis. It's probably easier to see how the term basis is used in various uh, situations. Uh, referent is simply um that they are referred to by mind or words and and uh, I I left out one one thing <laughs> There's a lot of things I've left out, but um, when I went through the different preparatory texts for the five subjects, I said that there is the Dudra or the collected topic serves as the preparatory texts for the Abhidharma. And then the classifications of mind or Loric along with the classifications of reasons is the introductory text for valid cognition. And then there's a text called Ground and Paths. That's the introductory text for um, the presentation of the paths and stages. And I left out the preparatory text for the Middle Way, for Chandra Kirti's Introduction to the Middle Way. is a text that goes through the views of the different philosophical schools of Buddhism. The basic, basically the four major philosophical systems. And that's called, in English, tenants. Not the person that rents an apartment, but the uh, T-E-N-E-T-S, tenants, philosophical tenants, just to complete that. And uh, I was re- reminded of that because uh, when you go through the tenants, they go through the basis of... Uh, the different bases for the uh, establishment of tenets. Anyway, substantial phenomena and abstract phenomena. Substantial phenomena refer to the attributes of impermanent things that are in essence types of substances that possess functionality. So substantial phenomena is a term It's a set of words, and it refers to the attributes of impermanent things. Uh, So, phenomena have various characteristics. Fire is hot, water is wet. Um, many, Many phenomena have shared characteristics. Phenomena also have... Unshared or uncommon characteristics. The characteristics are attributes of those phenomena, and so um, substantial phenomena refer to the attributes of impermanent things. Impermanent things include all um, all functioning
1: things. all
0: functioning things are impermanent. So when, when we say permanent things, in the West, that sort of seems like we're sort of undercutting phenomena a little bit. But in this system, that means we're talking about real things, because all real things are impermanent. And unreal things, uh, permanent phenomena, are unreal. There are no permanent phenomena. So when we say impermanent things, that means we're talking about realities. And the types of realities we're talking about here are those that are in essence of substances that possess functionality, is the definition of substantial phenomena. That's a pretty clunky definition. Substances, and substances the implication of the term substances is debatable. In the West, substance means materiality. In this system, substances uh, applies also to uh, mind and mental factors, strangely enough, and that possess functionality. This category includes material phenomena such as wood or fire, mental phenomena such as emotions, and non-associated formative factors. So you have a slightly different translation of that, the term uh, that represents that third category, such as time, the person, impermanence, and so on. Abstract, and I'm going to skip the excluding part for now. Abstract phenomena refer to those that appear to conception. So when we say, appear to conception, you may gloss over that initially thinking, um, that doesn't, that's not significant. That's highly significant. They appear to our conceptual mind. They don't appear to our non-conceptual mind is the, is the inference, right? Refer to those abstract phenomena, refer to those that, those that appear. So those phenomena that appear to conception, to conceptual mind, as if they're substantial phenomena, but in reality are not types of substances, nor are they impermanent. So, what are permanent? Give me an example of of permanent phenomena. Anyone?
4: Space.
0: Space is a good example. And it, yep. uh, can you give me a category?
2: The idea of a dog.
0: The idea of a dog, and the idea of a dog, is uh, is one example of what?
2: I don't I don't know the term for it, but like a con. I was thinking a, ideas.
0: You know, an ideas. Idea. Yeah. Okay. Right. Ideas is a general term. So. Um, all ideas or concepts are permanent phenomena. Now, when we say permanent phenomena in the West, we think, "Oh, that means they last forever." These concepts last forever, <laughs> and that's not what we mean in this tradition. In, in this tradition, impermanent means they ch- phenomena that changes instantly. Our ideas change, but they don't change instantly. They don't disappear and reappear because you can't say that they are there to begin with. And so they are unreal permanent phenomena. For example, the conceptual isolate of a pot. There's the weird one, right? Conceptual, okay, we're good there. Isolate, An isolate is a term, it's a word, right, isolate, that's used in this tradition. It's a translation of a term in Tibetan and Sanskrit. But it's used to indicate the result of the process of conceptuality. What conceptuality does is out of the possible infinitude of phenomena, to identify or be talking about, it isolates one phenomenon out of that background. And they use this term because it's not, um, uh, it's general. Like, you can have isolates that are uh, collective nouns. Or you can have isolates that are specific instances of a collective noun. So a collective noun is dogs. We have the idea of a dog. So dog is an isolate. My dog is an isolate too. My dog is also not an isolate. That's my real dog is an isolate. But the concept of my dog is an isolate as is the concept dog the concept dog is a collective isolate and the, and the concept of my dog is a specific isolate so isolate means that which is the result of conceptual uh, sort of identification of you know a f- phenomena emerging out of the the morass of potential conceptual realm of your mind of our minds, so it's hard to describe, but uh such as the object universal so this is their way of uh translating um, generalities universals are generalities they are um conceptual and they're all encompassing and here they're talking yeah. about yes.
4: Is it, is it also the idea that it's it's not the, in this world, it's not the real thing, it's I, our idea of the real thing? Would that be another way to say it?
0: That is another way of saying it. Um, the, the gloss of real and unreal has like a value judgment mm-hmm. connected to it. And so we try to like... Uh, Lessen the value judgment by using a little more technical language, but and also real is a little bit uh, disputable. (laughs) But yes,
4: and also is this is. Although some people
0: would argue with you that concepts are real, just sorry to interrupt you.
4: So is I'm a little confused by substantial phenomena. Is that the same? as uh, a specifically characterized phenomena and the abstract is the same as a generally characterized phenomena in, in the, the system?
0: Yes, an abstract or universal, object universal, uh, and they also give the term generic image. These are synonymous.
1: hmm
0: with uh, what you just called generally characterized phenomena, which is another way of describing or another terminology that's used to describe ideas, concepts, images, and universals. Now, substantial phenomena is technically a subset of the set of specifically characterized phenomena. Okay. And I would be hard-pressed, as I think most people who have studied this material and it's sort of a, a challenging one is to say, what are described to me, or give me an example of a phenomena that is a specifically characterized phenomena, but is not a substantial phenomena, right? That's if you know this stuff, that's a little bit of a mind bender.
2: <laughs> it also seemed like the use of the word attributes is a, is a point because a specifically characterized phenomena has attributes, but it sounds like the substantial phenomena are its attributes, or in this way, uh, anyway.
0: Yeah, the whole the whole issue of attributes or or uh, qualities and characteristics is is a big issue, and we'll come to it, and uh, it's very famously. Uh, summarized in an exercise about colors, where they say that a white horse is not white. And that's your takeaway, is that a white horse is not white. And uh, we're a little bit over time, so i want to go back to this. And very briefly point out another level of uh, subtlety that's incorporated into this chart, which is really helpful to pay attention to and to look through and study, is uh, these other terms that are provided in the gray boxes for the, the, the lead terms within the gray boxes. So for example, we have objects, and then it says equal, noble objects equal existence, equal established bases, equal objects of comprehension, equal phenomena. When we have this uh, way of presenting things as equal, that means they're synonymous. They're different words or terms for the same entity. Subjects equal mind, consciousness, and awareness. These are all synonyms for the same entity. Things are conditioned phenomena. They're necessarily, and and so the terminology necessarily is important here. Objects are necessarily knowable objects. They're necessarily existence. And I'm going to come back to a mistake that I made earlier. Uh, where I said that the self would be another example of non-things. And I was wrong. I apologize for that and for confusing things, because things can get pretty confusing here, so it's not good to enhance confusion. <laughs> but um, the self is not a non-thing, because it's not an existent. So non-things, you see, are one of two categories of existence, there's two types of existing objects, there's things and non-things. So the term existent doesn't have quite the sense that it has in the West. In the West it's like, existing means, you know, it's like graspable. And uh, it doesn't, in this tradition, non-things are existence. and The self is a non-existent, so it's not in this chart. I actually have another chart where I created this category of uh, everything. (laughs) And underneath that there's existence and non-existence, and examples of non-existence are the self and unicorns and sky flowers and children of barren women and so forth. Anyway, things, conditioned phenomena, permanent phenomena, specifically characterized. Non-things are non-conditioned, uh, they're permanent and they're generally characterized. And then we have uh, consciousness equals mind equals awareness. And I think that's all the synonyms that we're provided with here. But it's very helpful and and useful to pay attention to the, the uh, synonymity. <laughs> the synonymousness of different terms that uh, reveal their nuances or their attributes, their so-called attributes. So we didn't make it very far through the 18 uh, topics, but I think you got a good taste in the second one of the subtleties of the complexities of the way that uh, basically the conceptual experience of the phenomenal world is broken down. And so that's the title of the course, um, Knowing the Objective World, right? Knowing the Nature of the Objective World. So, Knowing the Nature of Objects. And the, uh, the next topic or course is Knowing the Nature of Subjects is focusing on the subjects and the different types of cognition. So... We're a little bit over time, so let's end there. And next week, we'll dive into the uh, introduction by His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. And one of the the little uh, pieces of homework for next time is as follows. Figure out who the author of the book is, Okay. If you can figure out the author of the book and identify the, um, you know, the author, the editors, and the translators. And then tell me what's the relationship between the Dalai Lama and any one of those three other entities, author, translator, editor. You know, we can use our little scheme of relationships. Any final comments or suggestions or thoughts or questions? Okay, so let's dedicate the merit. By this merit, may I all obtain omniscience, may it defeat the enemy wrongdoing. From the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness and death, from the ocean of samsara, may I free all beings. By the confidence of the golden sun of the great East, may the lotus garden of the Rigdon's wisdom bloom. May the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled. May all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Derek. Have a good night. Thank you,
3: Derek.
2: Thanks, Derek.
1: Good night. Have a
0: good week. Bye. Thank you.
1: Thank you.